to the Cincy Reform Podcast. My name is Zach Wise. I'm here with my co-pastor, Brandon Burks, and we are continuing our series today on some of the ways that the Reformed tradition is distinct from the uh, Baptistic tradition. We're using Baptistic in a broad way to refer to churches that might be formally Baptist or they might be more just evangelical, but um, there are some things that really unite them together. And one of the ways that uh, you find a uh, sense of unity amongst these, the Baptistic tradition is that they are independent from one another and in the way that the churches there are, are governed, oftentimes called congregationalism. Uh, but we're going to kind of get into that here today. So Brandon, could you start to talk to us, introduce us to the way that the uh, Baptistic tradition tends to structure and govern their churches? Yeah, so the Baptists, they have a view of autonomy. They have a view of, you know, you might even say radical autonomy, where uh, each church is independent and there is no authority outside of the local body. And they um, try to avoid anything that looks like, like a Roman Catholic hierarchy or Episcopal hierarchy, uh, where you have bishops and archbishops, they they don't like things like Presbyterianism, where a presbytery might hover over over the, the the local church or something like that. So they're really kind of eschewing those the, those models of church government, and they believe that uh, the local church is uh, autonomous and independent, and there can be nobody outside to come in and tell that church what to do or um, what to say or what not to do. So a place in the uh, Baptist faith and message where they unpack this, uh, they say, A New Testament church of the Lord Jesus Christ is an autonomous local congregation of baptized believers associated by covenant in the faith and fellowship of the gospel, observing the two ordinances of Christ, governed by his laws, exercising the gifts, rights, and privileges invested in them by his word, and seeking to extend the gospel to the ends of the earth. Each congregation operates under the lordship of Christ through democratic processes. In such a congregation, each member is responsible and accountable to Christ as Lord. And so... Um, for for the Baptist, there's this democratic process where the congregation, every member of the congregation is just directly responsible um, in how they vote to, to Christ. You could say the keys of the kingdom are being held amongst the congregation in these democratic processes. Uh, the, the Baptist faith and message goes on to say, Christ's people should as occasion requires, organize such associations and conventions as may best secure cooperation for the, great, uh, for the great objects of the kingdom of God. Such organizations have no authority over another church or over the churches. They are voluntary and advisory bodies designed to elicit combine and direct the energies of our people in the most effective manner. So 
Baptists encourage uh, people to to do fellowship and have churches in fellowship with one another, uh, with one another, even to join an association that might be a body that helps to associate the many different churches. But there is no power whatsoever in the association. I guess you could say the only power the association might have is to disassociate, is to say, well, we're going to withdraw our association from that church, but they have no authority over that church in any way to come into the church or to speak into the church about good practices or or what they should or should not do. They have no authority to speak like that at all. It is only advisory. It is only voluntary. And there, um, you know, as, as it says, no authority. It has, it's, uh, the association has been stripped of all, of all authority. The only authority is the democratic processes of all the individual members who are directly under the Lordship of Christ and responsible to Christ. And that's kind of how they, they structure churches. Um, uh, again, like you mentioned, often called congregationalism. Uh, but Zach, how do how do we differ? How is the Reformed not congregationalist? Sure. Well, when we begin to think about the keys of the kingdom, I'm glad you brought that up as speaking about the congregation there. That's a good place to start because we do not believe that the congregation, in terms of all the members, individually hold the keys of the kingdom directly to make ecclesiastical um, uh, judgments and decisions and that the final authority rests there. But rather, we believe that the keys of the kingdom are held by the officers of the church instead. We see that in the Old Testament. We see that Christ is giving them to the apostles in Matthew 16 and 18. And that is in continuity with the Old Testament uh, expectation where there are officers who serve in a capacity of authority is given to them by way of ordination. And so when we think about authority within the church, we're thinking about a plurality of elders that are serving there, both teaching elders and ruling elders, or they could be called ministers and elders, that together they come together to be the shepherds of the church. It always strikes me that when I hear congregationalism described and discussed, that really the shepherds in that context it's the church itself. And then who are the sheep who are being directed? Well, as the congregation takes votes and makes authoritative decisions, well, then the elders then become the ones who are then told what to do. <laughs> because it's just got it flipped around. Who are the shepherds and who are the sheep? I mean, it's just a, it's an unclear thing in my mind as to how that works. But, and, and how do you rule well? You can't rule well, can you? Because you don't want to be ruled. Right, as Paul says, and the elders <laughs> who right. rule well, if they're not ruling. That just doesn't make any sense to me. So, And so, uh, uh, to make one clarification, too, one, one caveat, you know, the, the way in which some Congregationalists would understand this is they would say, well, the elders lead the congregation to exercise the keys. So they make a distinction between leadership and authority. Mm -hmm. So the congregation has the authority. Um, elders just have leadership. Um, but it's I think the, that really fuzzies up the line a bit as, P, as the congregation is, is voting mm -hmm. leadership. Is, it, it's just kind of blurring lines here between authority and leadership in ways that it becomes unclear, I think, in practice. Absolutely. And this, I think, is starts to, to clarify where... The real, real discontinuities between Old and New Testament come into play, right? Another one would be that we come into our conception of church and we expect there to be visible, 
connectional relationships between local congregations because God's people have always been visibly connected with one another. Now, of course, we'll say that, you know, a local church can still be a true local church uh, if it is independent and autonomous. That's in theory that can happen, but that's not for the good of the church. Uh, the church's well-being is realized when it is connected with others because that's the pattern we see in the Old Testament. It's a pattern we see in the New Testament. Maybe in a second you can talk to us about Acts 15. But this connectional nature of the church really serves it well. Because as we think about our own uh, denomination, the United Reformed Churches, we exist with real uh, covenantal bonds with one another. So I can, I'm held accountable for what I'm teaching. Uh, our elders are held accountable for the way, way that they are ruling and leading. And that, that accountability occurs at Classis, which is our regional assembly, and then at Synod, which is our denominational assembly where churches and their delegates gather from Canada and from the United States and have a congregation in Mexico, that this happens across um, uh, church boundaries. And so you can actually hold a leader accountable, whereas within a, an autonomous context, you cannot hold leaders accountable. But they can go rogue and do whatever they want. Local churches can do whatever they want. And there's no teeth to, to bring them to account and to hold their feet to the fire. And so, again, leadership really matters. Rule matters within our context. And then there's accountability for that as well within a plurality. So, uh, Brandon, maybe reflect on Acts 15 for us, if you don't mind. Yeah, I think Acts 15 is a clear example of, of this. So, there was a debate that was happening in the early church about the relationship of, of works, of uh, the law of Moses, and being saved and justified. And uh, you had some who were saying to be saved, you have to keep the laws of Moses. And uh, so that was being debated, and the apostles met, but they called elders of, of the, the churches to come. And so um, churches sent their elders. Um, they met at the J Jerusalem Council. They deliberated on the matter. They uh, came up with a document that kind of outlined what the council declared. And then it went back authoritatively to all of the local congregations. So there's an example in the Bible of an assembly, kind of like our classes or synod, that where as the delegates, as the, the elders are meeting and deliberating on matters and then sending that back to, to the churches. And um, now some congregationalists will look at Acts 15 and they'll say, well, that's not programmatic for the church. That's a, a one-time thing. That was an apostolic thing. It has no real relevance to how we practice things here, here today. But I don't think that's the case. And I think that the apostles were, I think one of the reasons of including the elders is to show them how to how to, how to carry on in the future. Because if it, if it was just a one-time apostolic thing, they, they, they didn't need the elders. They could have just deliberated amongst the apostles, mm -hmm. sent out an apostolic letter, but they were showing the elders, they were showing the local congregations, this is how you settle disputes, this is how you debate things, this is how you get things done. You come together as a regional body, um, you, you you, you debate things, you, you make a declaration, and then you send that authoritative declaration to the churches. Um, and so the, the idea of, of autonomy, um, you just don't see 
New Testament churches shouting their autonomy from the rooftop. They're always connected. There is outside authority, and the outside authority does speak authoritatively into your local congregation. Uh, and so the idea of just complete independency um, doesn't really make a lot of biblical sense, I don't think. Agreed. Yeah. Agreed. And I think that's um, a couple other things we might want to note here as we think about the difference in terms of how the church then functions practically is that and we've, we've mentioned the kind of idea of you know rogue pastors or abusive pastors there's a structure to deal with it mm-hmm. we make the caveat to just to say that just because there's a structure in place does not mean it's always um, infallible that's perfect we're not saying that but at least a structure exists mm-hmm. to address an abusive leader or uh, somebody who's theologically going off the rails or if there's a, a, a situation of maybe financial need, that's a place where we can think about too, the structure exists whereby a needy church can make appeals to receive funding from other churches or from maybe central accounts that are being held. If a, a, there's a church planting work, I know that the, our church here in Cincinnati was greatly benefited. And our two church plants in Indianapolis right now and Madison, Indiana right now, that those are being greatly benefited by some uh, shared funds that we should we uh, have with one another and we have um, uh, procedures by which we can access those funds and have them granted to us by a regional assembly so those kinds of things are in place to help with missionary works and with sending missionaries different places it's much easier when you have structures in place and governance in place that goes beyond the autonomous uh, local church likewise if you have a discipline case where maybe somebody is being uh, disciplined, it's not, it cannot be done overnight where you rock up to Sunday and all of a sudden you're being excommunicated and there's no procedure in place. But we actually have lines of appeal where if somebody is being disciplined, then they can make appeals then to higher courts, to broader assemblies, to classes and to synod to make sure that their name is not being drugged through the mud. If someone's being disciplined wrongly, we should know about that. We should care about that. And so, again, there's a way of appealing to others to make sure that discipline does not go wrong, does not go um, off the rails. Yeah, I mean, because if you're, if you're in a congregationalist setting and the eldership or the, the one pastor, or however it's structured, um, kind of goes off the rails, who, who, can, who can stop them? I mean, maybe the congregation, but it's going to be very messy. They're not going to have the resources and the structures in place to do it. Um, whereas we have structures in place. We have outside of courts and outside authorities. Um, and in a congregationalist, there's, there's nobody outside who can come in and, and do anything authoritatively. They might be able to advise or something, but there's nothing authoritatively that can be done. And then again, too, if a pastor wrongly kind of you know kicks a person out like what are they going to do they can't appeal to any higher higher court in the church to to vindicate themselves um and so you you just you miss out on that i think as well and i I like what you mentioned too about uh how we have processes to get money or funding for various things uh discipline cases uh what are some other things maybe that that kind of is, is problematic in the congregationalist realm well, I think that um, this might not exactly be the congregationalist, but I think maybe one place where we could differ and point out some clear uh, places for uh, continued conversation is the way that we, we think about ordination really matters here. Mm. And um, I mentioned this before, but it's worth bringing up again. 
that ordination really is a conference of authority. And that's what we see happening within the biblical text, Old and New Testaments, that office matters and that office is not something to be rushed into quickly. But really, it is God working in a special way through an office and an office bearer takes that office upon himself and then begins to serve in a special way as Christ's hands and feet within a, a sphere of authority. So we have teaching elders, we have ruling elders, and we have deacons, and they operate with real authority. And that teaches us then of how to look not just to the under shepherd, but then it teaches us how to, how to look at the chief shepherd, who is Jesus Christ. And we can know that he is ministering to us uh, through those offices as they are uh, conducted ap appropriately and biblically that we know that then Christ is meeting us in, in that place as well. I don't think that there is that organic way of thinking within a congregationalist setup, because again, the, current, the authority is held by each and every individual Christian in the same way. And so you can't view office in an exalted fashion in that, in that context. So that, that's another uh, thought I have. How about you, Brian? Yeah. Um, yeah. The way that some of the bylaws of some of these congregational churches um, uh, read, you could hypothetically have somebody who walks off the street, um, comes to your church, walks down an aisle, and you know gets saved, and then they come back that evening for the business meeting, and they're voting on important matters of the church, holding the keys of the kingdom, and they've been a Christian for a couple hours, and they have no idea what's happening. And in, in situations like that, you could have almost like a blind leading the blind. And there's, you know, I've seen churches where um, they wanted to, to, you know, the, to vote to bring on a pastor who just got out of, out of prison because he abused his last church. Or they want to, um, uh, I've, I've seen churches where they want to vote to uh, deny a key doctrine of the faith. Like we're going to reject original sin, one church uh, uh, declared. Now, in, in, in a more connectional way that, that we have, that, that those things would not be, be permitted. Um, you, you would not be able to reject key tenets of the faith. And, and it, it's a way to protect the church, to protect the pastor. It protects the name of Christ even. And, uh, yeah, in a congregational setting, you can have all kind of weird things happen because there's really no structure outside to deal with the radical things uh, that can happen. And even from a, from a kind of experiential uh, avenue, when I was a, a Baptist pastor, I really wanted to have a book of church order because oftentimes, you know, if you're the, the single pastor in a Baptist church and you decide to do something this way or do something that way, well, you have phone calls and everybody's mad. How come you did it this way? How come you did it that way? But when you have a book of church order that tells you how, to, how, how we operate, what we do, what are, what are the procedures, um, you have something to appeal to and say, these are the standards for all of our churches, this is what we do, and, and this isn't just me uh, coming up with something where, where I'm going to make half the church unhappy or something, but having something that unifies us, uh, like a book, book of church order, actually helps keep peace and, and keep everybody stepping on the same tracks, walking in the same direction. That's helpful. We hope it's been helpful for you as well. Again, we're the Sincere Reform Podcast. We invite you back next week as we continue uh, this series, thinking about some of the differences between the Reformed tradition and the Baptistic tradition. 
But um, check us out online at cincyreformed.org, and we are sponsored by Westside Reformed Church at westsidereformed.org. Thanks again for joining us today. Bye-bye.